Isn't this a great conference? How many of you feel like you're getting your money's worth, huh? That's, that's good, I'm out of here. No, you know, studying the fur trade has been a passion since high school. I read The Big Sky by A.B. Guthrie in a high school Western literature class, and I was hooked on that era. So I've been studying it pretty much ever since. And I really enjoyed the primary documents in the journals, and they keep turning up. We keep finding more primary stuff. Now, I understand, I don't know this to be fact, but I understand that John Coulter caught a blonde beaver that chewed off three legs and was still caught in the trap. You'll, you'll, get, it, you'll get it later. All right. I'm going to tell you about Nathaniel Wyeth. Thank you very much. Nathaniel Wyeth. Uh, led an expedition to the Pacific Northwest in 1832. He was from Boston. He goes to, to the, uh, out to Fort Vancouver, comes back in 33, puts together another expedition, comes out in 34, and then comes home by late 1836. That second expedition uh, ended up in the, the construction of Fort Hall, which is a, an entire story by itself. But um, he was an ice merchant. Uh, and the guy was very entrepreneurial. He was, had a very inventive mind. He had over 24 different patents for uh, harvesting ice. So the guy was pretty smart. One of the guys on his first expedition, John Ball, said that he, he was so good that he could repair a rifle with a pocket knife. You know, so the guy was, was, was pretty intriguing fellow. He did keep journals. He kept two different journals, 1832, 33, 1834-36. And uh, that's what this book is based on. This is the, the first volume based on the 32-33 journals. Those journals were published in 1899 by the Oregon Historical Society. And nobody had done anything with them since then. And in the meantime, journals of guys who had been with Wyeth at one time or another have surfaced. So what we did at the museum was to pull those other journals together and tell a bigger story that's based around Wyeth's journal. So what I want to do this afternoon is to very quickly get you from 1832 into April of 1833 when Wyeth comes into the Bitterroot Valley. So he actually came up with this idea of these amphibious wagons that he could take out to the west. He had talked to all the wags at, at uh, Cambridge University and, and all the people that knew you know, the, the experts on the fur trade in the, in the New England area, and he cooked up this idea to build these wagons. Now, these actually are from uh, Civil War era. We don't have any pictures of, of Wyatt's wagons, but they weren't just thrown together with tar. They were jointed and, and, and built by carpenters. They were pretty expensive to build, and uh, of course, he gets out to St. Louis, and everybody laughs at him, and he ends up selling them, and they said, you know, don't even bother. His, uh, his adventure to the West was, was quite the uh, adventure on its own, he leaves out of, whoops, my bad, wrong button. He leaves out of Boston and comes down to Baltimore by boat. Then he goes up the B&O Railroad, which had just recently opened in the last few months, the horse-drawn railroad at that time. By the time he gets up to Pittsburgh, he gets on a steamboat, comes down the Ohio to St. Louis, and then joins a fur trading caravan that takes him out to the Pierce Hole Rendezvous of 1832. So that whole trip was quite the adventure. By the time he gets to Pierre's Hole, which, by the way, is where I live, half of his men had deserted. They said, well, this is just too hard. They didn't have enough horses to begin with, so they were walking a lot of, a lot of the way. By the time they get to the Pierre's Hole, we're done. His brother, who was the doctor on the trip, he says, I'm out of here. His cousin, John, later writes a book that just is a scathing account of the trip, but it was uh, sort of um, 
ghost written by a fellow at Cambridge who was really opposed to Oregon, and so that uh, really comes through in John Wyeth's book. It's called A Short History of Oregon. So from there, they go on out to the Hudson's Bay Company, Fort Vancouver. By the time they get there, everybody else has said, I'm done too. So now Wyeth, he says he's alone on a sea of despair because he has nobody else. He ends up hiring two of the guys back to help him get back to Boston. But while he's out at Fort Vancouver, he meets a Hudson's Bay um, trader named Francis Ermatinger. And Ermatinger has convinced his boss, John McLaughlin, that he should be allowed to take an outfit of trading goods into the Flathead country and just travel with the Flathead for a season and see if he can't get enough beaver to make it profitable. McLaughlin buys the idea and Wyeth has hooked up with Ermatinger to at least travel with him as far, as, uh, as far east as Ermatinger plans to go. So they leave out of Fort Vancouver, they outfit, they supply at Fort Walla Walla, they head up to Spokane House, they're coming down the Clark Fork, they spend a, a couple of weeks at the Flathead Post, and pretty soon, by April 29th, they're in the Bedaroo Valley. Whew, I was afraid I couldn't do that in five minutes. <laughs> Pierce Hole is where, uh, uh, it's the Teton Valley today, it's where Driggs, Idaho is. It's directly across the Tetons from Jackson, Wyoming. So that'll give you an idea. So April 29th, what I want to do is just to read you some excerpts out of Wyeth's journal to give you an idea of the kind of observations that he was making. He makes a, a lot of uh, what ethno early ethnographers uh, find to be some of the first written observations by Euro-Americans of the Salish people. And uh, it's, it's amazing how they compare with other trappers who have also kept diaries and recorded their observation of the Salish as well. So on the 29th, of April, 1833, they've come into the Bitterroot Valley. He says, we came to the main camp of 110 lodges containing upwards of a thousand souls, with all of which I had to shake hands. <laughs> the custom in meeting these Indians is for the coming party to fire their arms, then the other does the same, then they dismount and form a single file, both sides, and they pass each other and shake hands with men and women and children, a tedious job. Here the Racine Amani, or Spetulum, is found. This camp is on the river with good grass. This day's march is between two parallel ranges of mountains, now snowy, but I think not always so. There is much camas in this region. We find little meat in the Indian camp, and we are therefore much shortened on food. So the Bitterroot River was known to the Salish as the, the waters of the red osier dogwood. If, you've, if you don't have a copy or you haven't read the book that the, the, uh, the Council Elders put together on the Salish and the Lewis and Clark experience, fabulous book. It needs to be in your library. It's just a wonderful, wonderful resource. The spot where they meet up with the village is just a stone's throw from Traveler's uh, West, Traveler's Rest, excuse me, <laughs> where Lewis and Clark, of course, will be there tomorrow. Uh, Traveler's Lewis and Clark had been there in September of 1805 and then again in June of 1806. And... Uh, the, the Flathead Party had been up in the Hell's Gate area, and they had moved down into the Bitterroot Valley. Uh, so we're about around where Florence is, and they're going to head on down, meet up with the Nez Perce, and head out onto the plains to hunt buffalo. And, of course, this was a, a major tribal gathering area for centuries, for generations, and uh, Wyeth and Ermatinger probably knew that that's where they would find the Flathead. That's probably where they were headed from. Um, Ermatinger had come to trade, 
And so, you know, the guns get fired, the introductions get made. Wyeth uh, had to shake hands with every person in the valley. Warren Ferris, as Ted mentioned, Ferris was out here from 31 to 34. He gave a similar uh, description. He said in 1831 when he met the Flatheads, and when the chief had come up, he grasped the hand of our leader, raised it as high as his head, and held it in that position while he muttered a prayer of two minutes at a two minutes duration. His example was then followed by the rest in the order of their rank. The whole ceremony occupied about two hours, at the end of which time each of us had shaken hands with them all. Now, Wyeth mentions Racine Amani, or Speculum. This is water, by the way. It's not beer. <laughs> Uh, that, of course, is the bitterroot plant, the Montana's uh, state flower since 1895. And in the Journal of the Academy of Natural Sciences, Thomas Nuttall, who is a naturalist at Cambridge, would, he's going to catalog all the plants that Wyeth brings back from this expedition. And uh, item number 41 was Luisia Rediviva, plate 2, Speculum of the Salish or Flathead Indians, Racine Damer of the Canadians. And, of course, that's named after Meriwether Lewis. Uh, Alexander Ross called it Racine Omer, which literally is the mother root. And it was a, um, a very important food source for a lot of the Plateau Indians, particularly the Flathead. Uh, Shoshone were big on that as well. Uh, the Nez Perce, a lot of these Plateau Indians are involved with camas and bitterroot. They, they um, usually prepared it by boiling. Lewis, in his journals, Meriwether Lewis talks about how they, uh, they boiled it up. Now, and despite there being a lot of camas around, Wyeth says that there wasn't a whole lot of meat in camp. And uh, although it might be, just, you know, he's just a greenhorn, he doesn't like the taste of it, whatever, uh, he might have been on the right track. Lewis, or William Clark wrote in October of 1805, Captain Lewis and myself ate a supper of roots boiled, which filled us so full of wind, we could scarcely able to breathe. That's one of my favorite uh, Lewis and Clark things. Now, now, on the 30th, um, April 30th, he says, I went out to collect some flowers for my friend Nuttall and afterwards to see the camp, meaning the Indian camp. They are collecting to go to the buffalo in force to, to, to head off the Blackfeet, and I watched their games. And he goes on and on with a very, probably the longest entry in his journal of this entire trip. So I'm just going to pull out a few things. Uh, he says, theft is a thing almost unknown among them and is punished by flogging, as I am told, but I have never known an instance of theft among them. The least thing, even to a bead or a pin, is brought to you if found. And if things that we throw away, it can sometimes be troublesome. I have never seen an Indian get in anger with each other or with strangers. I think you would find among 20 whites as many scoundrels as among a thousand of these Indians. So Wyatt had a, had a pretty good... Uh, uh, idea of what these Indians were all about. He says they're polite, they're unobtrusive. He says the young women are good-looking and with dress and cleanliness would be lovely. Today about a hundred of them with their root diggers in their hands in single file went out to get roots. They stayed about two hours and returned in the same order each time passing the chief's lodge. It was evidently a, sim a sim yeah, ceremony but the importance of it I could not learn. The more peaceable dispositions of the Indians than the whites is plainly seen in these children. I have never heard an angry word among them, nor any quarreling, 
although there are here at least 500 of them together, and they play the whole time at football and bandy and the light sports, which give occasions to so many quarrels among white children. So Wyatt is, is, uh, is pretty impressed. He's focused on their lifestyle, the practices, and he's making these ethnological notes uh, all along throughout his journals. And uh, Henry Schoolcraft, if you know that name, he, he published a six-volume catalog of Native Americans of the United States, and he sent Wyatt a list of question and answers about the Indians that he had met uh, on his trip. And uh, that whole section gets, gets published in volume six of uh, Schoolcraft's work. So you can find uh, a lot, particularly about the Shoshone. A lot of the Shoshone uh, information is in that Schoolcraft. Uh, the, the Flathead stuff didn't get in there, but it is in his journal. Now Warren Ferris, when he was with the Flatheads in 31, he also recorded several other games very similar to the, to the games that Wyeth is recording. The first sport that Wyeth described was a ring and dart game that Ferris called roulette. He said the French called it roulette. Ferris noticed that the gambling content, contest of the hand game, or la halle, was universally played by men and women, and he provides a lot of other details about those games that, uh, that, Ferris, or that uh, Wyeth did not include. Now, about their character, Ferris says some very similar things. He says that, that they are noted for humanity, courage, prudence, candor, forbearance, integrity, trustfulness, piety, and honesty. They are the only tribe in the Rocky Mountains that can, with trust, boast of the fact that they have never killed or robbed a white man, nor stolen a single horse. I have, since the time mentioned here, been often employed in trading and traveling with them, and have never known one to steal so much as an all blade. Now, Ferris, in 1834, hooks up with Nicholas Montour, and they actually get a Hudson's Bay trading outfit, and they travel with the Flathead just like Ermatinger does in 33. I'm not sure, but that may be where Ferris got the whole idea, was watching what Ermatinger was doing. Ross Cox, who predates um, uh, Ogden's trip into the Bitterroot Valley, he was with Alexander Ross, he said, the Flatheads have fewer failings than any of the tribes I have ever met with. They are honest in their dealings, brave in the field, quiet and amenable to their chiefs, fond of cleanliness, and decided enemies to falsehood of any description. Now that whole thing about the, the women going out to dig roots, that has been uh, noticed as probably the first Euro-American written account of the Flathead First Root Ceremony. It's usually held in the early spring before the harvest, and it ensured abundant and robust camas and bitterroot harvests. Anyone gathering roots before that ceremony uh, had been completed uh, risked causing the roots to shrivel and be scarce. And typically two elder women were appointed by the chief and they would count off a specific number of female assistants who would proceed to the traditionally fruitful areas of, of where the roots were found. The senior matron would pray to the sun and to the earth for success, security, and blessings. The women would then dig up a supply of roots, go back into camp and prepare them in cooking pits. And once the meal was ready, the chief would gather the tribe together make similar entreaties to sun and earth, and then the food symbolic of all that they would gather through that, that season would be passed out to the members of the tribe. Wyeth also very carefully described the root diggers that the women used. He said the root diggers are crooked sticks, the end used in the earth being curved and sharpened by putting it in the fire and rubbing against a rough stone. 
which both points and hardens them. They're also sometimes made of elk and deer horns attached to a stick. Again, Ross Cox, he says about the flathead women, the women are excellent wives and mothers. Their character for fidelity is so well established that we never heard an instance of one of them proving unfaithful to her husband. They are also free of the vice of backbiting. <laughs> and laziness is a stranger among them. Now, on the 1st of May, they're still in the same camp. Uh, Wyeth said it's a fine, almost summer day, although the nights have been frosty of late. This morning, the squaws left with their root diggers singing in good accord the tunes of their country, and Mr. Ermatinger traded 29 beaver. So, old Francis is doing his thing. He's getting the, the furs he came there. On May 2nd, they move the camp. They move about six miles up the river uh, over a hilly but open country, he says. It rained a little last night and some this morning. The day is cloudy and moderately warm. Then he goes on, he goes back to that quarrel thing. That's, that's got him hooked. He says, the absence of quarrels in an Indian camp more and more surprises me when I come and see the various occasions which would give rise to them among the whites. He's just amazed at how these people get along and their relationships. We heard about that at lunch, about how they teach their children respect, and we see that in these first-hand accounts of these, these white people that are going, I can't believe these guys are getting along so well. Third and the fourth, they're in the same camp. A party of hunters that was going to go trap for beaver on the fourth decide that the water's too high, there's been too much spring runoff, so they back out of that. But here's this entire village packing up and moving, partly because they're headed towards the plains, but partly because they have so many horses. And the horses are, are eating the pasture that's there, and they've got to move to find more graze for the horse. Uh, by now, they're probably along North Burnt Fork Creek, about a mile north of Stevensville, working their way down. It's just about where uh, Father DeSmet would establish St. Mary's Mission for the Jesuits just a few years later. It was an area that the Salish referred to as red-topped peaks. Um, on the 5th, they're in the same camp. It's a Sunday, and Wyeth says nothing happens on Sunday. So they're, they're very much uh, into the, the idea of a Sabbath there. May 6th, they move to camp yet again. They're camped on the creek of the main river. Once again, they've gone south. Uh, partly to find better feed, but undoubtedly they're continuing to close in on the Buffalo Range. The new camp now is probably on Willoughby Creek, uh, on the eastern edge of the Bitterroot Valley. Uh, May 7th, same camp. May 8th, this is an interesting one. On May 8th, last night we had a false alarm. Some Indians of the camp who were gambling, that hand game I mentioned earlier was a big uh, uh, popular gambling game. They were gambling for a gun and discharged it before laying it on the stakes. This, though a common occurrence, gave the horses a fright, and one frightens another in those cases until all are alarmed. The running of those that have got loose, the snorting, stamping, and rearing of those who cannot, when there are at least 1,500 head, the howling of dogs, men running with guns, the contrast of firelights with the darkness of the night, make altogether a scene of confusion to be recollected. I can just imagine that Wyeth, you know, back home in Boston, he's, here's a gun goes off, and the next thing you know, he's got horse hooves in his head, you know. On the 9th, they move again, about another six miles down the river, or up the river. A little rain, but warm, high winds, and somewhat dusty. Anybody live around here? Do you get rain where the rain just doesn't do anything to the dust? 
He says that the rain does not seem to lay the dust in the least. <laughs> As the camp moved southwest, they had seen some Blackfoot scouts hightailing it up into the mountains. Wyeth and the Flatheads relocate now about two miles south of Victor, and before the dusty day was over, a three-man uh, tribal delegation arrived with information about the main Nez Perce camp that this Flathead village is going to hook up with, and they're roughly 160 miles to the south. May 10th, they move again, seven miles. And this moment, uh, Chief Guino is saying the usual afternoon prayers. Now, Wyeth mentions this Chief Guino, so does Warren Ferris, so does a couple of other trappers. So I don't know if the tribe has any history on him, but um, he gets mentioned several times in trapper journals. He was uh, probably the same chief that led the first troop ceremonies earlier, but he says that it's a, a French word that means bad luck. And I'm not sure about that, I, but that's what he, I looked up French, I'm not a French speaker, but it wasn't Guino. But he, he spells it uh, half a dozen different ways, so we never know. This same chief led uh, a flathead contingent to the Pierce Hole Rendezvous in 32 and participated in the Battle uh, of Pierce Hole at the end of the rendezvous. Uh, May 11th, they started out early. The camp moves another 10 miles. Let's see where we are. Um, they camp on the river, the wide bottom of which is now done, and is, the river is jammed between the hills. During this distance, past two small creeks, big enough for beaver. So at the, day, at the end of that day, they're probably down at the, the choke point or where the, the canyon comes together, where the valley sort of ends. They've passed several creeks that would have been suitable habitat for beaver. Surely one of them was, I'll probably butcher this word, Skalkeho? Which means beaver in the Salish. So there's probably beaver there. Uh, the other likely candidates might have been Cow Creek or Camas Creek. On the 12th, it's, again, it's a Sunday, so they all stay in camp. Not much happens. Uh, long prayers are in, in their forms are as, as usual. Some of the lodges of Indians are singing as an act of devotion. So Ferris also noticed the, the religious aspects of the Flathead people. He says their religious exercises consist of singing and dancing in which they all assemble and engage on every Sabbath in the open air. To one who has been familiar with their manners and customs, it would seem that in ancient times they had a Jewish Jesuit among them who had instructed them in all the ancient doctrines of the Pentateuch. Well, there were some Iroquois trappers led by Ignace Lamousse, old Ignace, not young Ignace, uh, and they have been credited with settling in the Bitterroot Valley sometime before 1828. And Lamousse was Catholic, and he may well have uh, trained some of the flatheads in in uh, some of the Catholic rituals that have to do with their religion there. On the 13th, they move again, six more miles. Getting a little ahead of myself there. Um, and they're approaching the head of this river fast. Wyeth could see that they would soon be entering the mountains. They're camped on the left bank of the Bitterroot. He spotted more game than on previous hunts, but he managed to only kill one blue grouse. And the valley has historically been uh, home to vast numbers of that species. Meriwether Lewis writes a description of these blue grouse. 14th, snows and sleets all day. 15th, made six miles south-southeast and crossed the river, camped on a little creek, crossing two on the west side. Snowed last night and until eight this morning. Although as much as four inches of snow has fallen, it is at 11 o'clock all gone. So it didn't last very long, good spring snow. On the 16th, nine more miles southeast, following a creek of the main river. They crossed it six times during the day. So now they've moved down towards Connor, 
uh, the town of Connor, modern Connor, uh, they picked up the east fork of the Bitterroot now. They're following that. Six stream crossings during the day. That's a lot of, a lot of stream recording. And um, though he didn't mention passing the medicine tree that was mentioned at lunch, the Ramshorn tree, uh, he would have gone right past that. And, and it's likely that, the tr that he was on the west side, Ramshorn tree is on the east side. But um, that did get mentioned by Alexander Ross as early as 1824. He says about five feet from the ground, although other accounts I've seen says it's as high as seven feet up, um, the, is growing up with the tree, a ram's head with the horn still attached to it. And so fixed and embedded is it in the tree that it must have grown up with it. One of the horns and more than half of the head is buried in the tree, but most of the other horn and part of the head protrudes, that, protrudes out at least a foot. Sometime around 1890, a pioneer cut off the exposed horn and bark has grown over the scar, though recent scientific tests indicate that the horn and portions of the skull are still embedded in the tree. And that's the arrow there. That's about where the, um, the scar has grown over what's left of that. And uh, as, as we heard at lunch, it's a very important uh, place for the Salish people. So Wyeth goes uh, from uh, the Bitterroot Valley, he travels with Ermatinger and the Flathead, uh, out into the Camas Prairies near Du Bois, Idaho, which is north of Idaho Falls. At that point, they separate, and uh, Ermatinger stays with the Flathead. Wyeth comes down to the Henry's Fork, meets up with uh, Benjamin Bonneville. Together, they go to the 1833 rendezvous. Uh, after that rendezvous, he goes home with the guys that are taking the fur. Uh, one of the guys is Milton Sublette. The other fellow, Tom Fitzpatrick, are partners in the Rocky Mountain Fur Company. Wyeth makes a secret contract with them to supply the 1834 rendezvous uh, without telling Milton's brother, William, who's the main guy that they owe money to. Well, that kind of blows up in his face. William Sublette finds out about it and beats Wyeth to the 1834 rendezvous. So he has all, this, all these trading goods left. He goes over to the Blackfoot River area along the Snake and builds Fort Hall, and that's that's a whole story in itself. Now, this is uh, kind of the direction he's coming over, over what we now call Gibbons Pass, through, through Ross's Hole and down into the area that, uh, this, is, this whole area is full of Camas, and on over into the rendezvous was at the Green River Valley in 1834. Makes it back to Boston by November of 1834, and by the spring, I mean, I'm sorry, November of 1833, by the spring of 34, he's headed west again. And uh, this, of course, a little shameless promotion here. All this information is available in this wonderful book published by the Museum of the Mountain Man and written by a very nice fellow. And, <laughs> and I, I will bootleg these out of the back of my car if anybody wants to see, just see me later. Thank you very much.